Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. So I want to talk today about our complete Savior and the fact that Christ is our complete Savior. I think if I ask a question, I think everybody will say yes, we all believe that. But I want to challenge that thought a little bit, maybe in a deeper aspect. And, and we'll look at some texts, we'll, we'll probably look at some other angles and just try and complement the whole thing and, and paint a, a picture together and uh, see what we can learn as far as Christ being our complete Savior. Now, there's a very popular text. I want us to turn there first off, First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. This popular text is one that I have often heard, and I like it. It's not a bad text, but sadly, it, uh, the promised results of it actually uh, come, uh, come out in a different way. Anyway, let's read it first, and then I'll tell you what I mean. First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And this is what the Bible here says. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth. Now that's a fantastic uh, admonition that the apostle here gives us. Christ left us a perfect sinless example. And he refers to him here as an example. And, and he says that we should do something. We should follow in his yes. steps. And then he says, he did no sin and neither God was found in his mouth. And uh, Christ is an example for us as believers. There's no question about that. But amazingly enough, the emphasis on Christ being an example has resulted in many believers having a very difficult, trying, and burdensome journey. I'm going to explore that a little bit. The emphasis on Christ being an example. You see, there is potential danger in overemphasizing something beyond where the scripture puts emphasis. There is always that danger. And many times I've heard it, and, and Brother Alan refers to this uh, as well, that, you know, Christ did it, so can we. He had the same makeup. We have no excuse because he came a human being like us. He left us an example. Follow the example. And many times this is the in, uh, this is the uh, encouragement that is given. And that sounds excellent, but many times the result of that encouragement is results that are never intended, is disastrous results, because we have many times all these failures in following the example. And then you have an example here that is really hard to match. Who did how many sins? No sin. Yeah. No sin. <clears throat> Okay, we're going to look at that a little bit. So I, I, I just want to leave that thought there as, as, a, as an introductory thought because this potential danger is due to our nature. There is something in our nature that we want to do something to feel right, to feel okay, to feel that things are going well, to feel right chess as well, all these aspects. Uh, in Matthew 1, we don't have to turn there, you know, when the angel came and, and spoke to, to Mary and Joseph, he said, you'll bring forth a son and you'll call his name Jesus. Jesus. Mm -hmm. Or in the Hebrew, of course, that's Yeshua, which means what? Savior. Savior. God saves. The salvation of God. Salvation of Yah. And he shall save his people from their sins. And here, Christ, in his first introduction, is presented as Savior. So today we're going to look at these two aspects. Example and Savior. He is both. Christ is example, and He is Savior. Uh, not only that, but let's look at uh, 
let's go to First John. First John chapter 4. Here's another verse. A few verses that talk about this. I just want to look at this one. First John chapter 4. We're looking at Christ as example and Christ as Savior. First John chapter 4, verse 14. Notice what John here says. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, Savior of the world. And of course, you remember when the angels came to the shepherds in Bethlehem, they said, unto you is born this day as Savior. Time and again, the emphasis of the scripture on Christ and in presenting him is as a Savior. But Peter also says he is an example. So both are in the scripture. So I want to ask you a question. Christ is both our example and our Savior. But of the two, which is more important? I want you to think about that. Okay. Savior. The Son is the Savior. Both. Okay. Both are important. In his death and his life, he takes the both. Okay. Death and his life. That's true. Of the two. To know that we're following exam both. Okay, that's very good. That's why I'm asking the question to see how we understand certain things. I'm not, uh, you know, telling you you're right or you're wrong. But as far as the scriptures is concerned, where the emphasis placed more heavily is on the fact that he is Savior. Now, I'm not saying uh, which is more important, meaning one is not important. Okay, but there is an order. There is an order of importance. Both are very important. Make no mistake about it. But there is an order. One comes first and foremost, without which the other is irrelevant. And that is the fact that he is Savior. Savior is of the two more important. We'll see why. And of the two, it's the one that comes first. It has to come first. Uh, and to accomplish the promise of salvation, he is the Savior, but based on the promise that he would accomplish that fact that he would come and, and die for the sins of the world and so on. And, and so that's true, yeah. And, and, and the emphasis then is for us is to see him as example. But I want to focus on Savior a little bit and, and just maybe go a little bit deeper in our thinking as to how we see some of these things. Uh, you see, Christ must first be your Savior before he is your example. There is a lot of grief and heartache and trouble that results from attempting to have him as example before he is really, truly, and fully our Savior. And many times the emphasis, and some of us can perhaps relate to that experience, many times the emphasis from the front, because we assume everybody believes in Christ, so everybody has him as Savior, so we need to emphasize what's lacking. Well, all these people are not really following the example of Christ, so let us emphasize example. Example. Many times that's what we hear. Example, example, example. So we go home many times thinking, you know, to be a Christian is to follow the example of Christ. And in the process, somewhere along the line, the emphasis and the meaning of what he is as Savior gets lost. And so what we end up with is a copycat religion. Attempting to follow the example of Christ without, while missing the Savior aspect. Peter, Peter was writing to people who were, who were born again or converted or believers, Christians who accepts Christ and that he left us an example and to follow in his steps. And, and the question is not whether we should follow in the steps of Christ or not. It's the how that we want to explore. How is that accomplished? And the key to that is first when you understand and believe and accept him as your savior, that actually enables you to do what, that which you could not do before. And this is a straight, this is just briefly here. In a, in a popular story that happened one time a visitor came to a preacher he was listening to his sermons and the preacher was emphasizing the need to accept Christ as Savior that's 
Christianity. And the man uh, said that, you know, the preacher should limit himself to just presenting Christ as an example that we can follow, a good example. He lived a good, righteous life, and, and that's what he should emphasize, and leave the Savior stuff, you know, aside. And so the preacher turned to the visitor and said, well, you know, if I were to preach Christ as our example, would you follow his example? And, and the man, uh, in a flippant answer, says, sure, why not? And so the preacher, after thinking for a moment, said, okay, let's uh, think on some of the things that Christ did and didn't do. One of the things he said of him, the verse that we just read, is that he did no sin. Can you take that step and follow his example in doing no sin? Good question. And so the man said, no, I, I, I must be honest about myself. I actually do sin. And so the preacher then said, then it's impossible for you to follow Christ unless you first make him your Savior. It is he who must live in you so that you can say, like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus came to the world not just to set an example, but to become our Savior. And when we receive him, then we can do what he did. Now, someone say, well, that's very basic, and, and we all believe that. Well, that's why we don't talk about it too much, because we all believe it. But really, do we? Do we really understand what it fully means? I want to explore a little bit what Christ had to be in order to become our Savior. In order to become our Savior and what that involves, understanding that will help us appreciate His position as Savior. So we'll just spend a little bit of time uh, talking about that. And uh, of course, uh, it was mentioned before, in order to, to, to save fallen man, Christ had to become a man like the man he was about to say, fallen man. He had to come into that level. He came down to our level, as the song says. And, and on that level, he had to show that not only could he overcome sin, but he could vanquish it completely and accomplish salvation, the promised salvation that was spoken of by the prophets. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 quickly here and look at uh, man when he was first made. Look at his humanity a little bit. And I won't spend too much time on this. I'll just quickly cover that Ecclesiastes 7:29 Ecclesiastes chapter 7 the wise man here says in verse 29 lo this only have i found that god hath made man upright but they have sought out many inventions when god created man he made him upright and that's adam or the human race he was made upright righteous yes that's exactly right it's righteous so god Created man righteous, but they have sought out many inventions. And one of the first things that was sought out was, let's go eat from that tree, okay? And that caused all this war. But basically, something we all believe, I think, uh, before Adam sinned, he was perfect, he was righteous, he was holy. He was in the image of God, not only physically, but spiritually, morally, in character. So much so that when God looked at him, he said, very good, him and Eve, of course, it was at the end of that, uh, of that creation day, the sixth day. Very good. Very good. You know, for God, if you ponder that for a minute, for God to say about his creation, very good, it means it is really very good. In, in every sense, every faculty of Adam's being was a reflection of the divine. That's why it was very good. Not just the trees were good, or the, the, the primary focus of the whole creation was that which was made in the image of God. And when God looked at that and He said, You know what? That is a very good picture of me. And so when you look at Adam, and the angels looked at Adam, that's what they saw, what God was like. 
a picture of God. Holiness, righteousness, uprightness, uh, purity, all these aspects. And because that's what we're talking about a little today. He had a perfect nature. Every impulse in Adam tended towards holiness and righteousness. Every pull, every instinct he had was towards right doing. And God said, that's very good. It's a picture of what God is like. Now, that's very, very significant because that was a result of Adam being connected with God because we know the Spirit of God dwelt in Adam. And he had the physical evidence of the outside light. The garments of light that he wore were the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality that he was like God. He wasn't a small God. He was like God in character. So don't, don't, we don't want to misunderstand that because some people take that a little too far. And uh, everything was very good. But then when, when Adam sinned, Something happened, a tragedy happened on, on, on every scale, a tragedy in every shade of its meaning, on all kinds of, of levels. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and just again look at, at what happened here. Just see the contrast of the before and after. And then we will see what Christ had to be. This helps us understand what Christ had to be. Romans 5.12. We were actually talking about this verse as well the other day. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. You see, when Adam sinned, he introduced into the human race a new element. He introduced a new element. Romans 5.12 tells us what was introduced. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam introduced a new element to the human race, an element that God never intended and that God never placed. Adam's choice brought something new to humanity. That's something that's new. is called sin. And sin did not only come into Adam, but it entered into the world. And what sin brought with it is what? Death. And then this death passed on all men. Whose decision caused death to pass upon all men? Adam's decision. So you see, Adam was... A representative man. You know, even the, the name Adam in the scriptures is, refer, is, is the name of all of humanity, not just the, the first man. And so all of humanity now became infected with a disease, and the name of the disease is sin. And if you don't believe it, just watch them die. Isn't that right? Because death came by sin. So the evidence that sin is there is that every, every time someone dies, that's evidence that sin is the infection and death is the ultimate result. Adam introduced this new element into humanity. We all know that. But something happened to Adam individually as well. His faculties became corrupted. All his makeup, his faculties, his uh, spiritual nature, his moral nature, his emotional nature, his physical nature, everything became corrupted and infected with this plague, this highly contagious plague called sin. And as a result of that, everything came into subjection to this dominating power. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and see why I'm saying that. 2 Peter chapter 2. Death entered the human family by sin. 2 Peter chapter 2 spells out something here. Verse 19, 2 Peter 2, 19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Adam was overcome by Satan. Sin, really. Satan was trying to bring sin. He was overcome by sin. As a result of that, he was brought in bondage. 
So now Adam is a captive. And this captivity is to sin. He is in bondage. All his faculties, all his abilities now are in bondage to this dominating, controlling power called sin. You with me? And uh, in essence, that's what happened when the lights went out and they ate from the tree. Interestingly, that, you know, the lights went out when Adam ate. You know, not when Eve ate, if you look at it carefully in the Bible. And the, the human race fell when Adam ate, not when Eve ate. And the, 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 as, as Paul says in Romans 5, the reason why sin entered the world is not because Eve ate, it's because Adam, Adam ate, even though she ate first. So, you know, some men and women have this thing whose fault it was. It was Adam's fault. Adam was the head. And when the head fell, that's when the race fell. Eve ate for herself. Now, granted, she was deceived and, and there are other elements, but the scripture always lays the responsibility of the decision on the man, Adam, because he knew better, he still made a decision. And so sin entered by that man. Anyway, that's not really the focus, but Adam was now enslaved. Adam sold us out to this new enemy that ruled over us. Romans chapter 7. Let's go there as well and see how Paul brings that out. Romans chapter 7. You see, this new element that Adam introduced to the world basically is an enslaving element. That's really the point we're talking about here. It's an enslaving element. Romans 7, 14 confirms the same as well. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul says, I am sold under sin. How did he get there? Who sold him? Adam, under sin, sin is the ruler. You see this captivating, dominating element, enemy, that was introduced into the world by Adam. So he says, I'm sold, as a slave is sold, right? Under sin. You see, when Adam corrupted his faculties, all he could pass on to his posterity was corrupted faculties, dominated by this element of sin. Obedience now was impossible in this condition. I want to emphasize that. Obedience to God now was impossible in that condition. Completely impossible. Because whereas Adam had all his drive and impulses and pull when he was righteous, tending towards holiness and righteousness, as a result of this new element that he introduced into humanity, sin, he also lost, obviously, something, as evidenced by the light going out, now this dominating element is pulling the other way. And it is absolutely impossible in that condition to render obedience. I'm emphasizing that for a reason. Yes, comment. Okay, did God give the commandments so they're impossible to give them? The commandments and the principles of the commandments and the requirements of the commandments they were aware of before the fall. So God did not bring in any new requirement or any new set of rules that they were not aware of. The same requirement was there, but now there is a difference in how is Adam going to achieve it. Whereas before he could obey, now he finds himself in a position where he is ruled by a new master. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. He could not yield, and this is where the Savior comes in. And of course, as, as was mentioned, he was the Savior, you know, from the foundation of the world. And, and God did something the moment Adam sinned to enable man to be able to partake of righteousness still. But I'm emphasizing the fact that under the dominion and the rulership of sin, you cannot serve God. That dominion, that rulership has to first be broken. The faculties that are now enslaved and are in bondage to sin cannot serve 
or yield obedience to God. Very significant. You see, uh, particularly where the problem is, you know, was in the mind. And this is where we want to focus a little bit. Uh, the mind is the command center of the being, of the person. And sin took up residence in the command center, so to speak. Took control of the ship. Okay, took up residence in the command center. And in this, in this seat, the, the mind is really the seat of the higher power. It's where the spiritual uh, part of our being resides, right? There's the higher power and the lower, or the spiritual nature. Uh, and, and that's, that's, the mind is represented as that many times in, in the scriptures. And that's what governs or is designed to govern the whole being. And so now sin rules in the mind, took over. It's a, it's a ruling power and therefore it controls the whole being. And so the whole being is a slave to sin. This, brothers and sisters, was the condition of the human race. Utter hopelessness. This is to, to appreciate the Savior, we need to see what He came to save. You see, we, we take it very, very lightly that, that uh, as soon as Adam sinned, there was a Savior, and oh, well, it's, it's all okay. No, Christ, if He had not stepped in, it would have been the end, completely the end. As a matter of fact, Spirit Prophecy says even the angels, when they looked on at Adam after he sinned, they saw, they couldn't figure out how is God going to solve this? This is a hopeless situation. So it's a it's a close case. And then Christ came with this glorious plan that was a little bit terrifying for them because they weren't very happy when they heard that their commander has to come and die. But, but that plan has to be understood as to what needed salvation uh, first. And so Adam became corrupted in his being. His mind became sinful, rebellious, and incapable of rendering obedience. Now, why do I keep saying that? Let's go to verse Next chapter, Romans 7. Let's go to Romans 8, and let's, let's look at verse 7. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. And the Bible gives this condition and this particular mind a name, and I think we all know it, but let's read it and see what it says. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is what? Enmity against who? God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Can the carnal mind obey God? No. No. Impossible. So Adam's mind now became carnal. Car and carnal means fleshly. In other words, it is ruled by the flesh. And that's what sin took up residence in the whole being. And now it rules the mind. It makes the mind obey the dictates of the flesh and the lusts of the flesh. That's why it's called a carnal or a fleshly mind. It's not a heavenly spiritual mind. It is a carnal fleshly mind. And that mind is impossible to render obedience to God. Something has to be done on that level. You with me? We're looking at what Christ had to be to be a savior, but we have to see the condition of man that he came to save in order to appreciate that. And you see, this carnal mind is the only mind that Adam could pass on to his children. A mind that is the enemy of God, that is not subject to the law of God, and that cannot be subject to the law of God. You with me? That's the only heritage he could pass on to his children. Whereas before, of course, he had a spiritual mind that was in harmony with God, that uh, was subject to the law of God, that was obedient to the law of God. And had he not fallen, that's what he would have passed to his children. So he did not, he failed. So the governing power of man, the command center, was corrupted and infected by sin. And now he was in harmony with the enemy. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 52. Let's see now Christ. Let's bring Christ into the picture a little bit. Isaiah chapter 52. And before we read this verse, 
This is an important point to keep in mind. Where we get the carnal mind from. Because sometimes people think the carnal mind is developed as a result of our wrong choices or of our sins. See, the, the carnal mind is not a development of anything that we do. The carnal mind is something that we have by nature. It's actually called the natural mind or the natural man in other places. It's something that is ours by nature, that comes to us. And what it produces in us confirms that that's what it is. You with me? You know, the fruit that is produced by the carnal mind, sin or sins, confirms the presence of the problem. It doesn't, the sins don't create a problem. The sins reveal the presence of a problem. And the presence of the problem is this ruling master in the mind called sin. And the Bible calls it the carnal mind. So let's see what Christ does. Isaiah 52, verse 3. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. That's what Adam did, right? He sold us all for, for naught. He gained nothing. That good. He gained something that's horrible. You know, he gains, he introduces new element. And Jesus says, in the same way, you will be redeemed without money. Now, interesting why he does that. Because in the same way that there is an exchange that's happening, that's why it's called the second Adam. What Adam sold us, he's going to buy back. But he's going to buy back, not with money. He's going to do it as savior. And, and of course, you know, in, in First Peter, we don't have to turn there, but Peter says, you know, we're redeemed not with corruptible things as of gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what redeems us. That's what buys us back. And uh, the blood, I think we all know that as well. What does blood signify or symbolize? Life. So we are redeemed with the precious life because that's what Adam lost. Because what sin brings is death. Okay, that's all fits. It makes perfect sense. He lost life. And the life that he lost was the, that connected life with God. Sin came in and sitting in on, the, on the train of sin is basically death. And so Christ says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to buy you back with my blood. My life. Life for life is going to give us that. First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. And this is where it starts getting a little bit interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. It says here, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Quickening spirit. Quickening spirit means a life-giving spirit, or a spirit that gives life. That's what the second Adam was made, because that's what we needed. You see, when Christ came to earth as the second Adam, he had to bring with him the element that would restore us. And that element is not available from the family of the first Adam anymore. You with me? He was made a spirit that gives life. <coughs> he had to bring into the human family a new element. The element that Adam had lost. And this new element is the antidote for death. And therefore it's the antidote for sin because sin brings death. This new element, Christ was made a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. You see, he had to meet the enemy on the ground that he claimed. And so that's why the contest was Christ had to come into the fallen nature of man. But he came bearing the precious element that we all need. 
That's very significant. We touched on that earlier this morning. Let's look at uh, Romans 8. We don't have to go there. I'll just try and save some time. In Romans chapter 8. He had to meet the enemy on the ground that he claimed. And where did sin take up residence? In man, in humanity, in the, in the nature of man. Romans 8 and verse 3 and 4. I think we're all familiar with this verse as well. Romans 8 verses 3 and 4. See, Christ came to set people, captives free, right? Captives free from sin. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his, son, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Okay, let's think about this verse for a minute. What could the law not do in that it was weak through the flesh? Make us righteous? Save us from sin? It could not solve the, the, the problem that we found ourselves in. It could not give us life. It could not give us righteousness. It could not liberate us from the dominion of sin. And the reason why, it was weak through the flesh. Because in the flesh there was something that the law cannot overcome. Called sin. Carnal mind. Enemy. Not subject to the law of God. So the law of God is, it cannot do anything. And so God says the law is not the solution to this problem. You with me? So God, to counteract the problem, now he says, listen, the law couldn't work. God then sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now he sent someone in the same likeness where sin took up residence to battle for us and for sin. And he did something. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's why we, we, we believe that Christ took on him the sinful flesh. And he condemned sin in the flesh. And we want to see how exactly. And, the, and here is the purpose of it, verse 4. So that the righteousness of, of the law then can be fulfilled in us. The Son of God is the Savior. He had to break the hold of sin. He's the Savior. The law can never save. That's why God sent his Son. The second Adam had to come and overcome sin in the flesh. And of course, the flesh that sin took up residence in is fallen sinful flesh. That's why Christ had to take that flesh. The nature that Adam corrupted, Christ came to restore. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, because this was mentioned as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. That's why the Bible says he had to be made like us in, in all things. Let's look at this. And like I said, maybe it's going to start getting interesting here. Verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So Christ took our flesh and our blood. And the only, sorry, the only flesh and blood that we partake of is the fallen one. He took part of the same. But then Paul goes on to explain a deeper aspect to this truth. And this is where, if you're starting to fall asleep, this is the, a wake-up moment. This is where, if you're starting, the lunch was affecting the brain cells. This is the time where you need to check that on your neighbor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wake-up moment. Because uh, we're going we're gonna to look at what that is. Because you know what? I've, I've heard this verse so many times. And it's emphasized. And then people go and say, see, Paul repeats himself. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Emphasizing that Christ is just like us in everything. And the emphasis there is that he is example. He had to be like us in all things in order to provide an example that we can follow. Because if he isn't in one part, how can you follow the example? And so the emphasis is on he's like us in everything because he's an example and we can follow the example. 
But notice how Paul clarifies that a little later. Same chapter, verse 17. Verse 17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So, in all things, you know, in this verse is mentioned, it behooved him to be made in how many things? All things. And you know, many times the, the, the preacher or the speaker would emphasize this aspect. And, and that's what I always understood. Yeah, in all things he was like unto his brethren. He was like us in every single thing. But is that really what Paul is saying? Now notice who he says he was like. He says he was made in all things like unto his brethren. Well, here's the question. Who are his brethren? Because that's who he is made in all things like. Who are his brethren? Interestingly enough, the same chapter provides the answer. Look at verse 11. So the question is, who are his brethren that he was made in all things like? Verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hmm. I have never heard that in all the emphasis on all things. You with me? Did you see something here? The brethren that Paul is in the context of the chapter, we didn't go straying too far in another book or another, or another author. That same chapter tells you what Paul was thinking when he said he was made in all things like his brethren. He says his brethren are those who are sanctified. Now what kind of people is that? Holy people? Believers? People who are born again? The next verse also. Uh, okay, what's the next verse says? It says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, comma, in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. Okay, uh, exactly. Okay, emphasizes it even more. Thank you. That's very, very true. And then verse 13 says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I refer to as disciples many times. And believers. Believers are referred to as his children. Very interesting points. Very interesting yeah, thoughts. Church, Assembly, that's another translation, that's very true. Congregation, all, all meaning the same thing. But I don't want you to miss the point here. You know, when, when this dawned on me, I was like, hold on a minute, how come nobody ever told me this? We never, as far as I could hear, we never identify the brethren. We just say, everyone, and we make Christ like us in all things, even in our position of the carnal mind. Now, we might not spell it out that way, but that's how everyone is. That's how we all come into the world, in possession of a natural carnal mind that is the enemy of God and not subject to his law. Yes. This is the reason Ellen White objected to John Harvey Kellogg's concept of the Spirit of God being in everything. Because Including the sin. He's not in the center. Exactly. Exactly. He's not in the sinner. Because if he's in the sinner, he wouldn't be a sinner anymore. Or Yeah, that's right. The presence of Christ does something. And so he's made like unto his brother. Now someone will say, well, hold on a minute. You know, I thought all of humanity is, is, he is the brother to all the human race. He's the elder brother of the whole, whole human race. Correct. That is very true. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, he says, in as much as you have done it, unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Christ is the brother of all the human race as far as his nature, as far as his humanity is concerned. But when it comes to the aspect of the mind, he is a brother to the believers in a way that he's not to others. You with me? 
And we're going to see that as well from the scriptures. Yes. I have a question about. Uh, so you, you mean that the Holy Spirit is not in the sinner at all? The, the Holy Spirit is in the sinner as a drawing influence to bring them to Christ, but it's not abiding there. It works from the outside. Yes, it's it's representing scriptures as knocking. It's representing as Christ is outside, you know, uh, Paul talks about the Gentiles being uh, not part of the commonwealth of Israel, and then he calls them without God and without Christ in the world. And so Christ is represented as, as on the outside of the heart because sin is still reigning there. And we cannot serve two masters. So he's knocking on the door, seeking entrance so that he might bring about that change. But notice how the brethren of Christ are identified by Christ. I think we all know these verses. Let's go to Mark 3. Mark 3. And you know, when this dawned on me, it was a precious thought that, you know, he was made like his brethren. Mark chapter 3, verses 34 and 35. We all know the story. Here is Christ preaching, and some people come to him, and there is a huge crowd in the house, and they're trying to get in, and they send him a messenger and say, listen, your family is outside waiting. You know, your mother and your brother is outside and then Jesus, in verse 34, he looked around about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. So who are his brethren? Those who do the will of God. Those who obey. Now remember, those who, have the, who are in possession of the carnal mind cannot obey. They're not subject to the will of, the, of God. They cannot be. They are the enemies of God. So here Christ is identifying a group of people that are his brethren in a closer sense than all of humanity. So he's a brother to all of humanity in a general sense. He's the savior of the world. But in an exclusive, special sense, he is a brother to those who obey. In other words, he is a brother to those who have been changed, to those who have accepted him as savior. And in order for him to be their savior, he had to be a life-giving spirit. He had to come in possession of this gift called life. The Spirit in order to give to us. That's why the Bible represents Him as being made a life-giving Spirit. It's those who obey. Those are His brethren. Now I want to ask you a question. Those people that obey, I think I already said it, but these people, they have a mind that is subject to God or subject to sin? Subject to God. So they don't have a carnal mind anymore. Something has happened in them. They have a spiritual mind. Or in other words, they are spiritually minded. That's who he was made like in all things. You see, many times we emphasize the fact that Christ was like, like us in all things without emphasizing which group. And we make him like the unregenerate person who has a carnal mind. I've actually heard people say, you know what, Christ was like us in all things. He had a carnal mind, but he obeyed God. He did not allow the carnal mind to do anything. But the Bible says that's impossible. The Bible actually says it cannot be no matter how much you try. So which mind then did Christ possess? The mind of Christ. Okay, the mind of Christ. <laughs> Definitely not the carnal mind. <laughs> Definitely not the mind where sin rules, which the Bible calls the carnal mind. He had the mind of Christ, which we are admonished to have. Mm -hmm. The mind of his father. The mind of his father. That's right, yes. So the carnal mind is the higher power. It's the mind power. You see, there's the lower nature and there's the higher nature. There is the mind and there is the flesh. The carnal mind is the higher power that is ruled by sin. But it's corrupted says, but and says, in harmony with the lower power. But she says to keep the lower powers of the mind under the control of the higher power. Of the Only mind. when we're converted. Only can these be kept in check when we're converted. 
This is the, this is the whole point. Sin had freak course. You know, the sinner on the street doesn't have a problem in his mind when he goes and does all these things. It's the Christian, there's the challenge, there's the fight. There's no battle. His whole being is in harmony. As far as the sinner is concerned. Now, uh, uh, bar the promptings of the Spirit of God. But there is a real battle when you are spiritually minded, when you are born again, and you have Christ sitting here, and then you still have these temptations, these desires. The lower nature seeks to assert its dominance and reclaim its seat of power, and then there is a battle. And we are to keep that in check with the power of Christ, and we can. But when that is the case, the power of sin is broken. Sin is no longer in the driver's seat. And this is the key here. Christ came into this world without sin, in the driver's seat. Now, guilt is an aspect of the mind, but the guilt is a product of us committing sin and then feeling the shame, the, the responsibility, the, the reproach, the, the guilt that results. So that's a follow-on. But guilt is not really our primary problem. Our primary problem is sin. You know, guilt comes when, you, when, you, when the fruit of sin develops and you do something wrong. But the problem exists long before that. Yes, he convicts, yeah, convicts the world of sin and responsibility of sin, of course. So, so that's very true. Now, there's an accuser that uses guilt. The accuser also uses guilt as well. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah, there's a condemning guilt. The Holy Spirit. Convicting and condemning. Correct. The Holy Spirit convicts of guilt, offering the solution to the problem. The, the Satan condemns of guilt and drives you lower in the problem. We're not, we're not all guilty until we personally commit sin, which makes us responsible. Guilt is a personal matter. It's a personal responsibility for action done. There are people in this world, young children, who don't have that guilt problem, but they still have a sin problem. And this is why the, the, the problem is not a guilt problem, it's a sin problem. And the sin took up residence in our nature, particularly here. Yes, sir, right. yeah, the, the, the problem of sin, which, which that's why the solution to the problem offers you a change of nature, nature spiritually. That's how Christ overcomes that. Now let's look at a verse here in uh, John 10. A lot of people don't quote this verse in this context. John chapter 10. And this verse really struck me at one point when I was looking at this aspect as far as who his brethren are. It's those who do the will of God. It's those who are sanctified. And he is not ashamed to call those who are sanctified his brethren. John 10, 36. We all know the verse for a particular aspect. You know, that's where Christ... The, Claimed he's the son of God, but I want to focus on another bit. John 10, 36, he says here, Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I am the son of God. What did the Father do before he sent Christ into the world? He sanctified him. In other words, when Christ was born, he was already sanctified. sanctified. How many people are born that way from the family of the first Adam? None. In order for us to be sanctified, we must be born... Again. So he wasn't born with the need to be born again at all. Actually, somebody put it nicely this way. When Christ was born, he was already born again. He was sanctified and then sent into the world. That's why when the uh, angel came to Mary, he says, The power of the highest shall overshadow you, and therefore that holy thing that shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. He was sanctified and sent into the world. He was that holy thing from the word go. That means, and, and you see, this is the thing. When we are born again, that is what changes. We lose the sin controlling mind, which is called the carnal mind, and in its place we receive the mind of Christ, a mind that is ruled and controlled by Him, the mind of Christ. 
That's when we are made righteous. And as we grow and as we develop and as we grow in that state, we become more and more like him. The fruit, we begin to bear the fruit just like him. That's the walk of sanctification. With me so far? You see, a man who has a carnal mind, we saw earlier, cannot obey God. So in order for God to bring man to a point where he can obey him, he must change his mind. And in order to do so, he sent the Savior with that mind. And he condemned sin in the flesh. All through the life of the Savior, sin tried to gain dominance of his mind. And that was the battle he had all the time. And he maintained a steady course throughout. And that's why he comes to us and he says, I give you this mind. I was made just like you when you are born again. So that you might be born again. You see, if Christ had nothing to offer to humanity outside of us, then he wasn't a savior. We destroy our savior in our effort to make him altogether such an one as ourselves in our unregenerate state. You with me? We destroy his capacity as savior. What we're doing, we're just presenting an example that no one can follow. That's what we do. And we keep, and when we fail in following, keep urging, but just keep trying harder. Brother James, you know, you just got to use that willpower. You know, Chris, you just, you just keep, keep at it, brother. You have to keep trying. That's what we do. And we talk, and, and I've talked to people. I used to tell people that. And you know what that does to people? The constant failure creates a problem in the mind. You can only Depression. last so long. And then you have miserable, depressed Adventists. And some, exactly, that's exactly right. And some, they say, I can't do this anymore. And they just chuck the whole thing out and say, I'm out of here. And it destroys people. Because what's happening is we're emphasizing the example, the example, the example. A savior is what we need, but exactly, we need a savior more than an example. And I'm going to come to that in a minute, but our time, uh, is this clock fast? <laughs> Whoa. Okay, uh, let's, let's, let's speed up a little bit. So, so Christ possessed a mind that was subject to God. He possessed a spiritual mind, a mind connected with God, a sanctified, holy mind. And in that way, he was that holy thing. And we can only possess that mind when we are born again. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Saying that, you know, if Christ was, was like us in all ways, in our unregenerate form. He did have a Savior. He prayed loud prayers and cries to him who could save him from death. That's right. That's right. Yes. But to maintain... He, 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 to save him from temptation. Yes. But he wasn't a, a, a slave of sin like we are. And so he didn't need a savior in that sense. So uh, th that's what she's saying. If Christ was like us in every single thing, in, uh, as unregenerate people, then he needs a savior as well. And that's true. We'd be, We'd be in trouble. We would be in trouble. Because you know what that means? He has nothing new to offer us. That's the thing. He had to come with some solution to the problem. If he came just like us exactly, jumped in the hole, and he didn't bring a rope, then we'll say, well, praise the Lord, but how are we going to get out? He had the rope. And the, the long arm as it was represented. He never let go. And that connection with God was in here. 
Sin never took up residence here. He had the spiritual mind connected with God. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make you like me if you believe. I'm going to give you that experience. I, exactly. Let's call it cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that sounds like a hand. philosophical term. I don't know what that means. You, you sit on one hand, he's like us. But he's not like us. No. Okay, let's, let's explain. He is like us in all things except sin. Ruling in the mind. Don't drag his mind into it. And yeah, that's that's the quote that we read earlier this morning, where John says, "Don't make him, you know, don't go too far in making him like us. Don't bring his mind into it. He had to have a part of him that was not like us, otherwise he couldn't offer help. That part is where the solution to the problem was: his connection with the divine, and that's where he was made a, a quickening spirit, incarnate Son. That's right. You see, he's the only one who came into the." Exactly. That's why God could sanctify him and send him into, send him into the world. He's the only one, human being that was born who had an existence before he was born. And so he was sanctified. He was sent into the world as a savior. That's what we needed the most. A savior, not an example. We needed a savior to break that hold of sin. Then you can follow the example. But that's, the Savior comes first, yes. And he offers that divine mind to each one of us. Yes, exactly. The same solution that he brought with him, he offers to us. That's why he's Exactly. And that's what his brethren are. That's who his brethren are. That's what Apostle Paul in, in Hebrews, same book, he says, uh, you know, holy brethren, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Holy brethren. That's who his brethren are, the ones that he makes holy when we are born again. So there's many aspects. So I think you're seeing what we're saying. The mind of Christ was connected with God. That's what enabled him to keep under his body. That's what enabled him to keep under the fallen sinful flesh. Because he had a renewed mind. He had a mind that was connected. That's why he condemned, that's how he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it. It never took up a legitimate hold. It was condemned. You have no place ruling here. If you're connected with God. That's what his claim is. In other words, you can truly for, overcome sin. Only if Christ rules in your mind. You have the mind of Christ. You must first lose the carnal mind. Okay, so let's, uh, let's keep going here quickly. We're getting really far behind. John chapter 3. You don't have to go there. You, know, you all know the story. Nicodemus comes to Christ at night and Jesus gives him a condition. He says, except you be born... Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. Except to be born again. What, what does that mean? The hold of sin, where sin took a presence in that carnal mind, that needs to be changed. And only way it's changed is not, we're going to try and modify your behavior. You see, the gospel does not offer a behavior modification plan. It's not here is a set of instructions, do your best and God will do the rest. That is not the gospel. That does not solve the problem. The gospel is a radical transformation from within. Jesus says you have to be born again. And when you're born, you receive life. In other words, Jesus is saying the life that you receive by your first birth is only a dying life. It's infected with the disease of death. Sooner or later, it will be extinguished. It will not last. You need a new source of life. You need to be born again and receive a new life. And that's why I was made a quickening spirit. That's why I was made a life-giving spirit. I can give you this life because I was sanctified and sent into the world. And I came just like you, but I condemned sin in the flesh. And I want to give you this mind. If you believe, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And not only Nicodemus, of course. Everyone else. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
verse 49 and 50. Notice the order here. And this becomes, again, significant. The order of things. Because sometimes, like uh, Brother Alan mentioned this as well in the morning. He said, you know, Christ was born for the Holy Spirit, but John the Baptist. You know, you can, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not like Christ. He was not that holy thing. John the Baptist was a human being who had to be born again. He was, you, you see, the inference here is very dangerous. Because if we can be born just like Christ from our earthly parents, then any one of us could have been Christ. And that's why they come up with, with all kinds of ideas. But you with me? If, if we could be just like Christ was born from our earthly parents, then any one of us could have been Christ. The family of the first Adam had nothing to offer in the way of solution. It only had death to offer. Something from outside of that family had to be reintroduced into the stream. That's why Christ had to come bearing that gift. Please do not deprive him of that which we need the most. In your effort to try and make him an example. He says that we destroy the Savior. That's the danger. 49. 1 Corinthians 15, right? Verse 49 and 50. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. The flesh and blood is the image of the earthly. Isn't that right? That is referred to as corruption. This cannot inherit incorruption. We must first bear the image of the heavenly. How, do, how can we bear the image of the heavenly? We have to be recreated in his image. God, When God made Adam, he didn't say, Adam, do this, do that, do the other. Now you're in my image. He made him in his image. So when we're born again, God doesn't say, do this, obey that, obey the other. Now you're in my image. No, he recreates us in his image. New birth. It's a miracle. It's a divine miracle. We sometimes underestimate that. And that's the, that, that first is the fleshly, then the earthly. We are always, always first born into the family of the first Adam. Then we are born into the family of the second Adam, if by faith we go to that. Or even the parents can claim that on behalf of their children. But the earthly is first, then the heavenly. You see, God does not have grandchildren, right? You cannot be born again from your earthly parents. You must be born again directly through Christ. We're all children equally. This is very significant. And so that's why in Peter he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. The corruptible seed is the first Adam. It works corruption in us, eating away at us, bearing this evil fruit called sins, and it keeps eating at us until we die. And if in the process of this journey we fail to be born again, we will not inherit incorruption. We will inherit corruption. You see, the new birth is significant. It's only possible because Christ came as a savior. He came possessing the mind of Christ, the divine connected mind with heaven, not the carnal, unregenerate mind. That's where the key is. Okay, let's, uh, oh man, so many verses. First John 2, First John chapter 2, verse 29. We're almost there. Let her speed up here. Okay, First John chapter two, verse twenty-nine. This is the new element. This is really the the core of the gospel. What the gospel has to offer, life. Verse twenty-nine. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Notice, those who do righteousness are 
born of him. Now, the doing of righteousness is not what makes you born of him. The doing of righteousness is the evidence that you are born of him. You cannot do righteousness before you are born of him. You cannot. And all our efforts are trying to follow the example before truly receiving his righteous life is only attempts at failure. And the harder we try, the greater the failure. If you do righteousness, you're born of him. That's the requirement. We're trying to do righteousness, bypassing the born of him. Because we don't emphasize that too much. Yes. Paul says, I die daily. I die daily. Are we born daily? Should be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because sin doesn't give up. Every day sin is at us again, then trying to regain. the discouragement to me, because you, you think this is a one-time thing. Yeah, Joey, you got to be born again. Okay. Uh, I think I had a real high experience at a camp meeting once, and I felt really good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I was born again then. But after that, something happens, and I lose my temper, and I yell at somebody. I'm born. Okay, Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to come to that. That is, that is where it becomes practical. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. We must renew it. Okay, we must renew it. We must renew it. We must maintain it. We'll be born again one time. Yes. Now, if we... If we renewing it. Okay, if we go back and willfully go back to the old man then we do need to be born again. But the new birth is renewing or, or affirming or maintaining it. It's something that daily happens, whichever way we express it. But it needs to be a fresh dose. It needs to be freshly topped up, so to speak. It's a connection that needs to be actively maintained. It's like, you know, the anchor on the ship. You know, throw the anchor and don't worry about it. No, well, you need to check. It's, all, it's always there. The renewing of your mind. Be renewed. And once that's renewed, it is... To be maintained and nourished and grow in grace day by day by day. And, and I really am glad you brought that aspect up because that happens. We do fall. We do have these experiences, these moments. Yes. Uh, just a couple of sentences from that invite. And tell me what you, what you think about this. This impressive lesson. She says, in his prayer to the Father, Christ gave to the world a lesson which should be graven on the own mind and soul. And quote from John 17, 3, this is life eternal, he said, that they might know really the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is true education. It imparts power, the experimental knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ whom he has sent, transforms man into the image of God. It gives to man the mastery of himself bringing every impulse and passion of the lower nature under control of the highest powers of the mind. It makes its possessor, uh, uh, it, it makes its possessor, possessor a son of God and heir, an heir of heaven. Mm-hmm. It brings him into communion with the mind of the infinite and opens to him the rich treasures of the universe. Mm-hmm. But it comes from knowing the Father and the Son. Yeah, that's the new birth. Yes. Yeah, but then she says this is the knowledge which is obtained by searching the Word of God. Yes, of course. The Word of God tells us about the new birth. It instructs us about the problem of sin. It, all these aspects, that's why we're looking at the foundation of the Scriptures. It, it, you see, 
human psychology and humanism does not teach that we have a sin problem when we come to this world. As a matter of fact, they teach we, we, we're actually good. And we need to, yeah. Yeah, and we need to look for the good and develop the good that's in us. Only the Bible tells us our problem. It, it paints a picture of our problem in, in such vivid colors that no one can mistake it. We have a sin problem from the minute we arrive in this world, not from the minute we choose to do something wrong. Anyway, so let's, let's press on quickly here. That's why Christ is also referred to in Isaiah 9, 6 as our everlasting Father. You know the verse? Sometimes a lot of people like to prove the Trinity use this verse. Uh, not that that proves any Trinity. This has to do with His role as Savior. The context of the verse is about Savior. He will be called our everlasting Father. That's the second Adam. He will have children. Yes, spiritual children. That's right. Exactly right. And that's who he is the brother of that he was made like in all things. That's why it says, you know, uh, behold, I and the children which God has given. That's those who are sanctified. That's who he was made of, uh, like. And that's where the promise is, you know, if a man believe on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's the new birth. That's something has changed in you. And as that river flows and it begins to water, it begins, it begins to show evidence. That's the new birth experience. And in order for that new birth experience to be ours, Christ had to be made that holy thing. If we deny him that, we are denying ourselves the new birth. And this is why, sadly, the, in the copycat religion theology, you know, a copycat religion, where you focus on the example, there is really no room for the new birth. You don't need a new birth. If Christ was just like you, just follow his example. Why do you need a new birth? And we have this, uh, and, and we have this, is revealed many times. You know, people come and say, you know, I'm struggling. I can't really, I can't do this. And I can't do that. Just try harder. Try harder. That's, that's the, the solution that's thrown at people. We don't emphasize the need for that converting, life-changing power. Brothers and sisters, the new birth is a miracle. It's a miracle that sadly, many people with Bibles in their hand, don't even know about it. When you recognize, uh, you say, there's something, you're not there, okay? And there's a deficiency. That's when we pray to the Father, give me more of your spirit. Mm -hmm. And he is more willing to give us of that spirit then, than we are trying to give you. Exactly. What if it's a combination of both? It's a, it has to be a combination of both, but one comes before the other. In reality, your son, when you have a son, the first years of his life, he will always try to, he will always try to copy you. And he will do it even if he doesn't want it. It's just how he's made. And it's the same true spiritually when we are born again from Christ. We are going to follow the example after we are born again. We should, but most of the problem arises is that how things are presented and the theology we believe about Christ, it emphasizes the following of the example without the need for being born again. And if the born again is ever mentioned, it's said as a lip service, it's something that we should say. When we are born again, there is something that miraculously changes in us that enables us to do that which was impossible to do. Good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they're wrong or right. That's between the minister's duty. He better check and see if it's biblical what he's doing. That's, I know. I, it helped me. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. The, but some, but there is the danger also sometimes is that we look on the external and 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 not really. The, the new birth is such a a rare thing that we don't know what we're looking for when we look for the new birth. We look for just is he doing? Is he not doing? And sometimes it's just simply willpower. So we're coming to him. So go ahead. I think a lot of. T- I think that a lot of times when people are baptized, they have not been told they need to be born again. They think that when I'm baptized, I'll become a member of the church. Now I'm born again. No, they're told that they're... Wow. What was that? They were told they were born again when they were baptized. And they think, okay, now I've been dipped, now I'm born again. Now why is... I'm, I'm not having victory over sin. What's going on? Not realizing they need to be born again. And it's not been told. It's not been studied with them. They don't know from the Word of God. It's not. Well, they think that what, what? Like that it is. All says that the first is baptized by water and then by the Holy Spirit. It should be, ideally, a symbol of something that has happened. That's what baptism is. It's a dying to the old life, to the old man, arising to a new life. And the reception of the Spirit is the evidence of that. It's, but sadly... Well, new birth has been trivialized. Yeah, it has been. It's been because everybody believes that, yes, let's... Yeah. Adventism many times is represented to people as a list of prophecies you understand this way, doctrines you believe this way, rules and regulations that you do and you don't this way. And that's many times what people are baptizing. Then you can enter into the club. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Christ, that's exactly right. And, and so they're, they're, they're baptized and they say, okay, thank you. Well, this is what an Adventist means. I do all these things and I don't do all these things. Mm-hmm. And then if that's not too emphasized in some churches, they, they start, you know, going to these other camps or self-supporting groups and they see the list emphasized. And, and that's many times the experience we have. It's the do's and the don'ts. And somewhere along the line, Christ, the Savior, gets lost. Christ, the example is there. And that, you know, that, that is emphasized all the time. But the Savior, brothers and sisters, we need a Savior. I'll tell you what, what Gary said is very, very significant. So many times, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. But we have the mind of Christ. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, renewing of your mind. Uh, you know, gird up the loins of your mind. All that is telling you, all these things are what we need. And we have them in Christ because Christ was made that way. He was made just like that. That's what David said, creating me and clean heart to God and renew a right spirit within me. Only then can you follow the example. Only then. Let me ask you a question. Will we fall when we fall to try and follow the example of Christ? Will we fall? Do we fall in trying to follow the example? Yes. Everybody can say yes. How many sins could Christ commit and still be a savior? None. None. How many sins can you commit and be forgiven and still be saved? There's no limit. You see, Christ had it really, really hard. We have a luxury that Christ did not have. We, had a lu- we can fall and get up again. Christ did not have that luxury at all. He was Savior, brothers and sisters. Don't try and make him too much like us. Let's just leave him where he is a Savior. How many of us can follow his example without ever falling? By the time we're old enough to realize, we already have a bad track record, right? <laughs> Isn't that right? When I was eight years old, I was baptized when I was eight years old. Now that I'm baptized, I won't sin again. I won't. That's it. I will not sin again. I'm baptized now. Yeah, see, but you see something here. You see, he is Savior 
not simply example. He's not just example. Because the example that we have in him, he had zero sin. Zero committed sin. How in the world are you going to accomplish that? Try and follow his example. Good luck. Here is a set of rules. Good luck. All the best. He's going to save us from our sins. Okay, saves us from our sins. You see, this is why he was made that holy thing in order to do that. He, he was made like his sanctified brethren to enable us to be saved from sin, to allow us this luxury. It is really a luxury. And I'm not saying let's take advantage of the luxury. I'm not trying to say, okay, let's go make the most of it. But that we can fall and still get up again. And this, this is where, where the Bible talks about that a number of times. The ideal that John presents is, my little children, I write unto you that ye sin not. Right? The purpose of the gospel is that ye sin not. And if any man sin, there is an advocate with the Father. You know, Christ didn't have the rest of that verse. All he had was sin not. The whole fate of the world is resting on the shoulders of the Savior. Brothers and sisters, he's our Savior. He is our Savior. And when we fall, we run to Him not as an example, as a Savior. That's what we need. The problem is people, when they fall, what they see is what they're used to seeing is an example. And now their failure doesn't match the example and they feel even worse. Because they just example. I failed in following the example. Take that out of the way. You don't need an example when you fall. You need a Savior. Look to your Savior. He's, yeah, that's right. And He lifts us up. You know, that's why the Bible has all these promises. I'm, I'm going to refer to them because our time is up. In Proverbs 24, 16, it says, A just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. He's a just man when he falls. Does he stop being a just man when he's down? Depends how long he stays down. Depends how long he stays down. Good answer. He is a just man if he rises again. Now, this is the thing. A lot of people, seven times. And it's good he said seven. That's right. That's the, that's the, that's the, the perfect number. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we stumble. And many times in people's minds, they think they've lost salvation. They are outside of Christ. They are not even converted. They need to be born again and go back to square one. And you know what? If you keep going through that cycle a few times, you, you, you don't have enough faith anymore to believe. It destroys your faith. The Bible says the just man falls seven times and he rises again. Christ knew that in our frailty, sometimes we would fail in following his example. That's why he is first a savior. Then his example. There's another verse. Same, uh, uh, his father, David, Psalms 37, 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Brothers and sisters, these promises are precious. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin. Yes, that's right. These are precious promises. Psalm 37, 23, and 24. This is a good man whose steps are ordered by the Lord. God is guiding him. God is in his life. He falls along the way. God does not utterly cast him out. God upholds him with his hands and lifts him up. Why? That's only possible because Christ was a savior. See, if Christ was only an example, that would not be possible. God says, sorry, failure. You have to reset the Bible back to square one. That's not what happens, brothers and sisters. But that the world through him might be saved. But now, now someone say, oh, this brother, you know, he's excusing sin. Look at that. He's just saying we can fall. I'm not excusing sin. I'm reading to you the promises of the scriptures. Reality is we sometimes, through human frailty, take our eyes off Christ. And fall. Something happens, we react. Something or other happens. Now these are things that we are to overcome. 
But we fall. Say we fall. And we're still not perfect in learning how to follow the example. We've been born again. We have Christ. We're doing everything we can with his grace and with help. And we fail. So what? then what? Don't throw your experience all out the window because you fell. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. This is... Yeah, remember where you've fallen from. And then come back. That's right. And, and we know the way back. You know, we messed up. The Bible says if we confess our sins, it's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. But it doesn't mean we are totally and completely gone. You know, I've talked with many people who have come with tears saying, you know, I've failed again. You know, I ate a piece of chocolate again or, or I did this or, or I lost my... And, and you know what? To them, that's it. They're now, the gates of heaven have been barred to them. They're outside of Christ and, and they just feel, oh, I might as well give up. Brothers and sisters, remember something. This is not an excuse to go eat chocolate. But remember something, our failures do not negate the fact that Christ is still our Savior. He is our Savior. That's why we need Him as a Savior. Mm-hmm. Let me read to you a statement or two from Spirit of Prophecy. I haven't done any Spirit of Prophecy yet. I wanted to establish a foundation from the Bible. I'll close with this because I think we've made the point clear enough. Notice this statement, Review and Herald, August 7, 1888. Okay, interesting year. And this is, I consider this a prophecy. Listen carefully. We shall fail often in our efforts to copy the divine pattern. Here is news. We shall fail often in our efforts. Follow the example. We shall often have to bow down to weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. But we are not to be discouraged. Pray more fervently, believe more fully, and try again with more steadfastness to grow not try and follow, to grow in the likeness of your Lord. As we distrust our own power, we shall trust the power of our Redeemer, and we shall praise God who is the health of our countenance. See, we have a safety net. We have an advocate. We have a Savior. And that's for the very purpose that Christ knows our nature. He knows what will happen. That's why He came, and He did. He had to overcome every single sin so that He can be a Savior, so that when we fall, says, I've covered that one too. Don't worry, get up again. Let me read you another one, beautiful one, from Steps to Christ. And I find this really encouraging, and, and this, this has to do with what you were saying as well, I think. Steps to Christ, page 64. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ, and who really desire to be children of God. Yet they realize that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they are ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. To such, I would say, do not draw back in despair. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. It's the same thing. But we are not to be discouraged. Now here's where it goes on to say, Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off. Not forsaken and rejected of God. But this, we have a Savior. That's what allows all this. Do you know how many people's experience is miserable? Because once they're overcome with the enemy, they believe they are rejected and forsaken of God. And that's it for them. And it, it's a miserable walk when you're constantly doubting. Oh, I did this. I'm out of Christ again. It's not joyful, happy, knowing that you're in the presence, secure in the arms of the Savior. And should you venture this way, he'll say, come back here. Don't worry. I've got yeah, my hand on you. Yes. It's very, very uh, amazing to read the first chapter of the Prophets when she talks about Lucifer. He went so far from God. Judging God, condemning God, talking with the other angels bad about God, and then he says there one, one, one uh, sentence. God was ready to reinstall him in his position. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. If if God was so patient with Lucifer, <laughs> then there, how much more patient he could be with us? Exactly. 
That's exactly right. Last verse. Let's close with this verse because our time is uh, well and truly up. Hebrews chapter 7. This is our last verse. Then we can have discussion after we close if you wish. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. It says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us, or for them, you know, that's us. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. He's in the sanctuary. No, I realized that. I was going to come to that. But that hasn't happened yet. And we cannot, see, we're expecting perfection when Christ is still interceding for us. Now we are to grow in grace. But the problem is we need in this time period to develop the faith that will enable us to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Perfection of character is not the requirement of salvation. Perfection of character is the requirement for the last generation, the 144,000, they stand in the sight of a holy God. Salvation is based on Christ and knowing Christ. See, we, we, we have adopted a position that demands so much of us and so many people are failing and so they question their salvation. So our security and our assurance of salvation is taken away from us by the very theology that we have adopted. And, and when we're not secure and we're not, we don't have the assurance of salvation, we don't have faith. And if we don't have faith, how in the world are we going to develop it overnight down in the end? We need to understand that we are walking in Christ, should we fall, we rise up again. And his aim is to bring us to a point where we will not fall. Now, some of us are not there yet. But if in the process, every time we fall, we think we're back at square one, we will never get there. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's a process. Christ is our Savior. And so that's why perfection of character. Not everybody who, who, is, who has died in the past and is in the grave has reached perfection of character. These people are going to be in the kingdom. Why? Based on the last generation. Now we are to strive with all the power that we have to be among that number. But then when I says that the 144,000 are not sure they have a sin unrepentant. Yes, this is the, the yes, the sins and the, they they are searching their hearts so deeply as they're seeking if they, somehow they have missed something. And that's the temptation that they have. That's right. That's the temptation they have from the devil. But they know they've given their life to Christ. They're looking to see, okay, have my sins all been, have, have I left something out? They're not wondering if, if they are totally lost or not. They've, they, they have been converted, they've been born again. They know they've given their life to Christ. And then the rest is they cannot remember any, they cannot remember one sin. Yes, this because how, it's... This is how we know they are part of the 144,000, because they cannot remember one sin. Because when, when the probation closed, all the sins are passed away, even from their memory. The correct. That's correct. They're concerned. Unless they, um, yes. Unless they um, disappoint their Heavenly Father. Exactly. Thank you. That's a very good point, Brother said here, that, you know, their concern is that lest they dishonor God, lest they dishonor Christ or the Father, that it will be a reproach on Him. This is where their, their, their big burden is. And so, brothers and sisters, the, the basic... No, it's not a selfish thing, correct. It's not about them. It's not about the 144,000. They are thinking of what else can I do for God's glory? Not for me. Exactly like Moses. Moses said, you know what? If you don't save the, the people, erase my name. That's it right. My name doesn't matter. I don't matter. They're your name because people will say that you are you not were the, That's right. 
This Correct. Is that's why they sing the song of Moses. Correct. That's, that's a very, very good point. So just I just want to close with this thought, brothers and sisters. Look to your complete Savior. If you've fallen, if you've backslidden, He can heal. The Bible says He can heal our backsliding. He can lift us up again. That's why we have a Savior, not just an example. So don't draw back. Don't give it all up. Hold on to your faith and go to the Savior. He, like, he said to the woman, I don't condemn you. Rise and sin no more. We know the way back, right? If we confess 1 John 1, nine. I just want to share these thoughts with you that Christ and understanding the nature of Christ has a practical ramifications on us in our practical walk today. That's really the whole emphasis that I wanted to share. Let's close with a word of prayer. Then we can talk some more if you want. Loving, eternal Father, we're so thankful that we have such a complete Savior who is able to save to the uttermost, that He does not tire in forgiving us and in restoring us and uplifting us. And may our faith grasp a hold of that relentless love that He has for us, that in the times when we do fail, we do not disappoint Him further by not coming back. We thank You, Lord, so much that all these things are offered to us freely, if we believe. And Lord, I pray that you will help each and every one of us. We all are still uh, have, trying to overcome whatever it might be, weaknesses and deficiencies in our life, in our character. I pray you will give us the, the faith to grasp a hold of the glorious life of Jesus, that it might be manifest in us, and that we might indeed be able to follow his example, not because we try harder, but because we allow him to live in us so fully and so completely that people do not see us but see him. This is our prayer and we ask it according to your will, knowing that you desire this for us more than we want. And we know that you have heard this prayer and we thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through his son Jesus.